All right, it's Thanksgiving weekend. I am glad that y'all are here. Hopefully you had a great time with family and just had a chance to really sit and reflect on things that we're thankful for and just the blessings that we have, especially in the last year or so. At our house, we actually, my wife put up a, uh, a sheet that had some of the things that the Yurton family was thankful for. So if you could throw that picture up there for me, give you a little clue into the, what the Yurtons are thankful for. So you got, you know, it's hard to read some of those. Sarah, I love Sarah's on the left there, or on the right, rather. Family, Jarvis, Mimi, Buster, God, and Jesus. You know, that's, she's a pastor's kid. Lucas is thankful for the dog. Uh, Jen is thankful for family and pickleball. I wrote Alejandro's, and then Connor wrote poop. And toilets. So we have that. This will be the world's fastest transition from potty humor to Jesus in the record. Okay, so we're jumping in. It is Advent. It's Thanksgiving weekend, but it is actually the first Sunday of Advent. And if you are unfamiliar with Advent, it is the season that leads up to Christmas, the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. And so for Christians throughout time and throughout the world, Advent is kind of a big deal. Because what we're called to do and we're invited into is to live with a sense of anticipation, to live with a sense of looking for Jesus as he's coming. This light enters into the world, the scriptures say, that our calling in this season is to remind ourselves of that, to remember, to look for light as as Jesus is we're anticipating his birth and coming into the world. In fact, John uh, put it this way. He summarized the whole thing and kind of set the... Um, plate for this. He said, look, the word, here's the the truth. The word gave life to everything. The word Jesus gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. See, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. His life brought light to everyone, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And so Advent for us is a really important practice, in part, Because even the very next verse says that even though Jesus was in the world, the very world that he created, it did not recognize him. The world did not recognize him. So part of our invitation in this season is to recognize him. The question for us is, do we recognize light when we see it? Do we recognize Jesus in our everyday life? Do we see the light as it breaks into things that can be dark? That's the invitation of Advent. And, and more than that, how can we do that even, even more? Um, I was thinking about this this week, and I remembered a trip Jen and I were able to take. We, uh, a couple years ago, went um, to Europe. It was kind of a busted, bu- um, bucket list trip that we took, and uh, we were really thankful that we didn't have any kids with us, so it was fantastic. But we were traveling all around Central Europe, and we spent a lot of time in Austria, which was a beautiful country. And we made it through the Alps and all the way, and we landed in uh, Vienna. And, and if, you, if you're unfamiliar with Vienna, Vienna is this unbelievable city. It is beautiful. It is fantastic. Um, there's this amazing history behind it from architecture, which was unbelievable, like stuff you've never seen before or you only see in pictures, um, to the arts, guys like Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms. Like these guys were in uh, Vienna at the time to education and even, you know, leading thoughts of the day. In fact, I didn't know this until we were there, but in 1913, in 1913, in Vienna, this is how much Vienna was a cultural center for the entire world. Um, at one time in 1913, within a mile of each other, lived Hitler, Stalin, Trotsky, Carl Jung, and Sigmund Freud. Within a mile of each other in downtown Vienna, 
right? I mean, it's this unbelievable center of influence in the world and for humanistic thought. Humanistic thought is this place where we put, we put humanity at the center of everything and we think we are the deal. And that was sort of Vienna at that time and now. It's breathtakingly beautiful, but it has also removed every vestige, almost every vestige of faith, of God. And so we were staying in this main plaza, this really cool hotel, and all around us were these expensive shops and beautiful boutiques and restaurants and like the best of modern life, everything that you could possibly want in this really amazing old school package. I mean, it was incredible. And then right across the plaza from us was this. In St. Philip's Cathedral, built in 1137, over 900 years old, in the middle of this unbelievably secular Mecca, was this amazing structure of faith. Or tourism, you know, like whatever you, there was just a lot of tourists around, but for whatever reason, we didn't go in until the very last night. And inside, here's what it looks like on the inside. I mean, it is gorgeous, this place. So go to the next picture there. This is the inside of, of St. Philip's. And it is beautiful. Now, the night that we were there, it was kind of dark outside, and so it was actually dark inside. They had closed a lot of it down. In fact, the very back of the, the sanctuary there is just these huge metal gates. And so you can't really go any further than where this picture is. Um, and it's dark. Like, they had shut off all the lights in the front of it. Um, that's all I really remember is how dark it was. And there were some tourists milling around in the back of, of St. Philip's there, just kind of checking it out. Outside, it was like Times Square. Inside, it was pretty quiet. But I remember, even with the tourists milling around at the back, the only light that we really had were from these rows and rows of candles. Like that. That's actually in St. Philip's. It's just beautiful, this picture. It's also touristy. Again, you know, 0.65 euros, kind of a Catholic tradition there to pay for things. But um, there's also a Catholic tradition that, you, you know, you light a candle for every prayer that you want to offer. And so you actually light the candle and you stick it in there, and it, it represents a, a prayer that is being offered up in hope and in faith. And I remember thinking in the midst of this, unbelievably secular city, the most maybe non-religious city in the world, where faith was an outlier and disbelief was central, that here were these, these little tiny beacons of faith, these little tiny beacons of hope in the darkness. It was literally light in the darkness. The better part about it is different sermon for a different day, but every candle was lit on the prayers of the one that had been offered before. Every candle was lit by somebody else's faith. Again, it was light in the dark, literally, and the darkness outside couldn't extinguish it. This unbelievable picture. And I think that's really what Advent for us is meant to be. It's a season where we're reminded to look for the light that comes into the world and not just recognize it for ourselves, but also to go be light for the world around us, to light the flames of the people around us. And so this is why we're jumping into this series together because we want to take that seriously as a church, as followers of Jesus. We don't want this just to be about the anticipation of trees and presents. We want this to be about the incarnation of the Son of God, 
the light who came into the world, and the darkness could not extinguish it. So that's where I think part of us is, um, you know, modern people, we tend to not think a lot about the past, or at least we kind of diminish it. But the ancients have a lot to teach us in this, because the, the practice of Advent throughout the centuries has been to celebrate four main things, five if you count Jesus, but four main things. And it was to focus on the light that comes through the form of hope, and the light that comes in the form of uh, peace, and the light that comes in the form of joy, and the light that comes in the form of, of love. That's what we focus on during Advent, these, these forms that light takes, the kind of light that darkness can't extinguish. And we focus on those and, and because we know that those don't just withstand darkness, right? Like things like hope and peace and joy and love, they don't just withstand darkness. They actually become invading influences into a dark world, a world that is not filled with hope oftentimes or peace or joy or love, that these things become beacons for other people. They invade the darkness. And it's not just for us. Like we don't, it's not just that we experience hope and peace and joy and love. It's that we actually go and give that to other people, that we start to become this form of light in the dark world. God meant for those to be the primary influences of his kingdom on earth. Think about this, because I think our posture in this season really matters. C.S. Lewis called the incarnation of Jesus. When Jesus shows up, he called it the great invasion. And what he meant by that was that this was the moment in history where the, the full power and the glory of the kingdom of God showed up in human form. That's why we celebrate it, because we see the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of darkness in this world. And it's this powerful picture of, of light coming into the world and giving light to everyone. And so what if we saw, what if we saw hope and joy and peace and love as the things that we were meant to bring into the world? Not just the things that we got to experience, hopefully, in this season, but the very calling of our lives to reflect Jesus in a way that brings the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to be the invading influences of the kingdom of God. I think if we think about it like that, we get a lot closer to the picture that the scriptures paint for us. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the great passage in, in, in Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians, he says, For though we live in the world... For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. See, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. See, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge, the experience of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it submissive or obedient to Christ. You catch the language there? Paul is talking about light invading darkness. It's military language, and we're not super comfortable with that today in our age, but you cannot ignore. In fact, C.S. Lewis also said that there is, if there's one thing that you cannot ignore that when you read the New Testament is that the writers of the New Testament saw everything, the whole construct of life, as a giant battle taking place between the forces of evil and the forces of God. It's not that those two things are equal, Right? But he said, we are in enemy-occupied territory. And that is the way I believe that the whole of scriptures paint this picture. So what if our weapons 
were hope and peace and joy and, and love. We saw those as our primary weapons and we used the power that is in those through the Spirit of God against darkness. It changes the picture of Christmas a little bit, doesn't it? If we begin to think of ourselves as proactive agents for the kingdom of God, ambassadors, Paul says in another piece in the scriptures. We have weapons that have the power to demolish strongholds and arguments and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge and the experience of God. Again, that's spiritual language, but I want you to just take a look at this because these these weapons have a direct opposite. They were meant for something because on one side, you've got hope and peace and joy and love, but on the other side, you've got these forces in the world that we do battle with all the time, all the time. So on the opposite side of hope, we've got discouragement and doubt and disbelief. A lot of that driven by fear. The opposite of peace in a world of chaos is anxiety. The opposite of joy in a world that takes itself way too seriously is distress. And love was given to us. Love was given to us. Perfect love to cast out what? Fear. It wasn't just meant to be this little light of mine. Like it's really meant to be a flame that lights other people on fire. That's why we pray, God, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Through hope and through peace and through joy and through love. We get to demonstrate those things. We get to practice those things. And we get to ultimately bring them into the world through Jesus. Again, I think that's a posture that, that is different from like fighting political battles and fighting ideological battles. So how do we practice love? Because Jesus says that's how we're going to be known in a world that is stoking fear at every turn. How do we demonstrate love? In a world that, where everything feels so weighty and so serious, where we're supposed to know the joy of the Lord as our strength, what does it live like, look like to live as a people of joy, to practice joy? What are the, what, in the world of full of chaos and stress and anxiety, how, how do we live with a peace that surpasses understanding in a way that becomes a weapon where we bring that to the world around us? And again, in, in a world of discouragement, doubt, like we're called to be a hope-filled people. We become good news to people who are wrestling through this. And that's the truth of the matter is all around us, the world is struggling to figure out itself. You know, doubt and disbelief in particular, just like in Vienna, is a stronghold that sets itself up against an experience, a real experience of God. Doubt and disbelief is a stronghold in our culture. One of an uh, author that I read earlier, it says, you know, listen, here's the truth. We're in a unique spot in history because we are the first generation, right now, the first generation where disbelief, doubt and disbelief has become a virtue. Where we're taught through the scientific method to tear things down, to deconstruct ideas and systems and traditions, to dismiss everything in the past because it's, we're more enlightened than that. Like we have our 
stuff together much more than people in the past did. And so we tend to dismiss the stuff that has come before us because we think we know better now. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. That we have this tendency within us to think that we are more enlightened and better off now than the centuries or the people before us were. And we all kind of sit and we go, well, aren't we? A little bit? Yeah, we know a little bit more than we used to. Look around. We tend to think in this, what they call myth, the myth of progress, that we're advancing as a culture to higher forms of existence. That's what we think. But it doesn't take a whole lot to survey the world around us to go, I'm not so sure that that's true. In fact, we tend to think that our IQs are just continually going up. What they've actually found through research is that since the 90s, I don't know why the 90s, but since the 90s, the average IQ, in particular in the West, has actually gone down. I would argue that it's probably starting to go exponentially down because we're all like, you know, on social media. The actual IQ of the average person has gone down in the last 30 years. And yet we're supposed to be progressing. And in the midst of a dark world like that, where sin is the one thing that people don't account for, where sin and depravity have just taken a hold of the human nature, we're like, no, no, it's not a problem. And into that world, Jesus comes as a light of hope in the darkness. Again, all of that can feel kind of dark, and we struggle with those things from day today, whether it's uncertainty about the future, whether it's the trials and the sufferings and the supply chain shortages that we have going on right now. Word of the year, by the way, supply chain. We're deconstructing all this stuff. There's an epidemic of loneliness because we've deconstructed community. There's an epidemic of anger and frustration because we've deconstructed cultural norms. And everybody's discouraged because we've deconstructed all of the value systems that we have inherited. All of them. Because we think we know better. Again, all that feels so dark. But in our culture, all of those things have become strongholds. That's the biblical definition of a stronghold. Where doubt, fear, discouragement get a hold of people. The actual Greek word for stronghold there means a fortress. Okay? A, a fortress that is buttressed on all sides. It's um, like a heavily fortified containment. It's also military language. The other usage for it, like think high walls. Nobody can get in. But the other usage for it, it is it's, it's a prison with high walls where no one can get out. It's a prison with high walls where no one can get out. See, when we get struck into the stronghold of discouragement and doubt, it's hard to get out of that. When you get sucked into to fear, it's hard to get out of that. When you get sucked in to a stronghold of anger and frustration, it's hard to get out of that. This is why hope and joy and life and love are so important. This is how one of the authors that I've been reading lately, a guy named John Mark Comer, he said it this way. He goes, look, this is why our world is so dark. There's a lot of light in it. Don't hear me say that there's not. 
But there's so much that, that we have to wrestle with. This is why following Jesus often feels like a war. It's why Paul described it that way. Because it is. It's not easy to advance daily into the kingdom of God because there's opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, ancient terminology. We feel this opposition every day in the nagging inner tension as we're torn between opposing desires of love and lust, honesty and saving face, self-control and self-indulgence. In the struggle for faith in a secular age where so many cultural elites seem to have left faith behind, where scientism is the new superstition, and where, as one author put it, we're all Thomases, doubting Thomases now. In the breakdown of a society losing its center, when you're the cognitive minority, when you're the people of faith, under pressure to assimilate to disbelief, you can't help but to think, am I crazy to believe all this? Am I crazy to believe what I believe, to live how I live? And see, this is the beauty of our calendar. The beauty of Advent is it's the season where we remember we remember what is true. We remember that light entered into the world and that it can't be extinguished. See, again, all that is just context that in our world increasingly faith seems naive. And we do battle with this every day, whether we realize it or not. Faith seems naive. And here's the kicker. So does hope. So does hope. But again, that's also why it matters so much. Because according to the scriptures, according to Jesus, we have been given the light of hope. We're called to be a people of hope. And when we make that central, the darkness cannot extinguish it. In fact, it becomes a flame for other people. Our hope becomes a flame for other people. I told that story about Vienna because it's, in my story, it's very uh, important. See, because when we were there, and ama amazing as a trip as it was, I was also in the middle of a season of really questioning my faith, of like doing a lot of the hard work on the inside of answering those questions. Do I really believe what I say I believe? Do I really want to live the way that I say I want to live. It's wrestling through some of those deeper questions. And when we hit Vienna, I'm not kidding you, every one of those doubts in my mind and in my heart was magnified times 10. It, when we hit the city limits, it was like, it was one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had. And the only term I could use for it was just a spiritual battle going on over my soul. I tried to not let the gen see what was going on, you know, because we're supposed to be in this magical city and we're having all of this, you know, beautiful things and great food and, and just incredible. But I, I was struggling so bad in my faith, so strongly with doubt and disbelief, and I, I was wrestling through it. In fact, I felt like uh, in hindsight I was, I was sort of running to it because I bought in a little bit to this chronological snobbery that I should be more enlightened than all of this stuff than this Jesus raised from the dead thing. So I was literally thinking in those couple of days, am I crazy to believe this? And so I, I, there's no other word to say. I was depressed. 
discouraged, which is not, if you know me, is not me. But there was just a weight on me that I could not shake. And so the last night that we're there, we go into this cathedral. I don't know why we hadn't gone into it before then. And we walk in, and I, I have what I can only describe as just an encounter with the living God, because through these candles, through these candles, I saw hope and faith. It was like God restored that sense of hope in my life in a moment. And as strongly as I was struggling beforehand, afterwards, I was just as free. It was unbelievable. The moment we walked into that cathedral and I saw those candles, it was like that whole weight of doubt and disbelief and discouragement and depression had been lifted off of me. It was a miracle. It was one of those moments in my life where I say, God delivered me from evil. All because of this little light in the darkness. It's so easy, I, I think, for any of us in a really skeptical world to fall into discouragement and run to doubt. Those are easy. That's why Jesus says the work of God is this, is to believe in the one that he has sent. It's also why hope is so important in such a light in a, a dark world of disbelief. It's central to what it means to be the people of God. We are called to be a people of hope. I want you to just listen to a couple of these scriptures. This is what stood out when Mike read uh, Romans 8 earlier, was just the message of hope that that is. There's nowhere we can go. There's nothing that we can do to separate us from the love of God. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus all of that stuff. And then you come to things like that we wrestle with, the darkness that brings doubt, things like grief, which we are terrible at dealing with in our culture. And what do the scriptures say? We grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Uncertainty, like all of the chaos and the uncertainty. What is tomorrow going to bring? Is there going to be another round of this stupid pandemic? All of that uncertainty in Jeremiah 29 rolls into your head at some point, and God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you what? A hope and a future. Keep going. Loneliness. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. If we're tired and just worn down, Isaiah 40 says, those whose hope is in the Lord will renew their strength. In fact, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. These are the promises of Scripture. We have been given a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. We hold and can hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because he who promised is faithful. Faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the certainty of what we don't see. God is the God of hope. And we celebrate that at Christmas. It is the light that entered into a dark world of doubt and skepticism and disbelief. All of these things that we read, those, it is good news into the world that we live in. But they can also just become bumper stickers for us. 
that we kind of slap on our lives and become trite sayings that we believe. But that's not how we're called to live. In fact, we were called to yield these as weapons. Hope is a weapon in a dark world. And we are called to be a people of hope. We've got to let hope become the fabric of who we are fabric of who we are. This is the language throughout the New Testament. Again, the word hope, I was amazed at how much this word comes up in the New Testament. But just read Romans 5, just before we read in Romans 8. Here's what Paul says. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so we boast, we live, we immerse ourselves, we sustain ourselves, we breathe in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also can then glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and then character, hope. And see, here's the deal. Hope, once it is in the fabric of our being, once it gets a hold of us, hope does not disappoint us. It doesn't allow us to be put to shame ever. Because he who promised is faithful. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. So how do we have it? How do we add hope? See, because I'm convinced, and this is what we're going to be walking through in this series, is that we have an answer that God has given us by his Holy Spirit to a stronghold that the world tends to operate in. But in order to wield it as a weapon, any of these things, including hope as a weapon, there are some practices that we need to do to get it into the fabric of our being, to let God have a hold of our hearts so that we become a people of hope, not just people who slap bumper stickers about hope on our cars. What are the practices then that we need to do? What's the practice to add hope because disciples what you and I are disciples of Jesus we practice we practice hope because we cannot give what we don't possess and so if hope is the answer to the stronghold in our culture how do we practice it Paul, like Peter says look be ready to give answer for the hope be a, uh, be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you so how do we practice that hope the rest of my story in Vienna is is interesting because I think it gives me at least a window into this. So about that same time that 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 whole thing was happening, I just looked at my journal again this morning and I was writing stuff down that I felt like God was saying and doing, even my doubts and my struggles, just processing it on a page and writing it all down. And about a week before as I looked at my journal this morning, I was complaining to God, like, where are you? I don't feel you. I don't see you. I'm beginning to lose faith. My doubt is just going to the surface. I'm, I'm discouraged by this. God, where are you? And he just gave me one word. He said, I want you to recap. So I wrote the word recap at the top of my page in my journal. Recap. And then he took me on this journey of the last couple of months in my life. And he's like, here's what I've been saying to you. You think I'm not speaking, but, but you know. You know I've been speaking to you. In fact, here's one thing. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right, God. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then here's another one. Okay, write that down. Two, three, four, five. I started writing and writing and writing. I stopped when I got to 20. 
20 things that the Lord had specifically been saying, scriptures that he had given me, thoughts that had been in my head, things that other people had said to me and brought to me, all of these things, and every one of those, I wrote them down as an act of remembrance stored up for me. How do we add hope? We practice remembering what God has already done. We write it down. Think about this. Remembering is a gateway to hope. See, none of that stuff, the miracle that happened in Vienna, well, nobody will ever be able to take that away from me. But God had me doing the work beforehand to make that possible. He had been speaking to me and helping me remember my story, helping me remember this story, the words that are in here, and writing those things down. That's why I'm so big on journaling, because remembering literally changes our brain into hope machines. It changes the wiring of our brain. And so when we remember, we practice hope, and it produces hope in us. Think about what God's people have always done from the beginning of time. They practice remembrance. They've told stories. They've built altars. They've placed stones. They've thrown parties. They've written down the story of the people of God in a book so that when we look at this, we would become a people filled with hope because God is a God of hope because he who promised is faithful. This thing that separates a living hope from a bumper sticker is practice. Is practice. And so as we enter into Christmas, as we enter into the rest of Advent, I want to challenge you to practice hope. Write down the things that God has done in your story. Write down the scripture passages that he has given you or that have been meaningful to you. Take time to remember and reflect on the truth and the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God, the God of hope. If we want to be the kind of people who are lights in the world, who light the candles of hope for other people, we will become a remembering people. So I'm going to read, I want to pray over us one last scripture passage. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we transition into a time of communion. And I I want you, as we read this last scripture passage, there's a prayer from Paul. And if you came into the building today with somebody, I just want you to put your hand on them. And I want you to pray for them and over them this prayer. In fact, you may write this down in your journal that you're going to go out and buy after this sermon, I'm hoping. Write this down and pray it over your family, your friends, your kids. I'm going to read this now. And I just, if you would close your eyes and just pray this over the person closest to you. Now, Father, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen, amen.